The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Trauma was traditionally associated with events such as war, assault and natural disasters. Now, it's increasingly used to describe everyday experiences like personal criticism or romantic rejection, becoming an empty therapeutic buzzword. So should we stop describing everyday setbacks as trauma? Or should a looser understanding of trauma be encouraged so that individuals can come to terms with their suffering? Joining us to debate the modern trauma and what we can do about it are neuroscientist Sarah Garfinkel, best-selling author of Zed, Joanna Kavanagh, and fearless psychologist Ian Parker. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iai.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to a host for this debate, Mark Salter. Thank you very much and uh, welcome to the trauma of the everyday. Trauma was always associated traditionally with events like wars, assault and disasters. But now it seems to be becoming increasingly used as a way to describe everyday experiences like you know, personal criticism or romantic rejection. Is it in danger of becoming an empty therapeutic buzzword? Some psychologists argue that we risk undermining the value of that diagnosis to stop us treating serious disorders. But should we stop describing everyday setbacks as a trauma? Or is a looser understanding of trauma to be embraced and welcomed so that perhaps people can come to terms with the problems and the traumas of their life, their suffering? Or is rather all this just as simply an illusion of our broader culture with its unnecessary focus on our emotional lives, hoping for a better life, which has now turned about to have undermined the hopes of an entire generation? So we have three distinguished speakers today to talk about this very, very subject, and um, I'll, I'll introduce them to you now. On my right is Ian Parker, who's a psychologist and psychoanalyst, who's also a professor of business studies at the, uh, I think, at the Institute at University of Leicester, isn't it? I was, yeah. yeah right. Oh, you're not there anymore. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, yeah. There's no, no mud on your shoes. The, the tunnel was dug a long time ago, presumably. Uh, on my left is Joanna Cavenna, an Albany novelist, although it's probably more accurate to describe Joanna as um, a philosopher who's very skillfully camouflaged as an award-winning novelist. And if you read any of her books, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And then further across, we have um, Pro Professor Sarah Garfinkel. Sarah is a neuroscientist, and uh, she's also head of the, um, the, the, the Cognitive and Effective Neuroscience Group at the University College London. And uh, she's very, very interested in, shall we say, what we might call that the cutting edge of neuroscience and its relationship to experiences of which trauma is one of her specialisms. 
I want to ask all three people to give a pitch and I'm going to ask them to stick to three minutes in answer to the following question. Should we stop describing everyday setbacks as trauma? So um, perhaps we could start with you, Sarah? Okay, I'm happy to, thank you. So yes, absolutely, um, I really think we should. Why? I did my early neuroscience and psychiatry training based in Detroit, um, where I spent six years working with individuals who'd undergone a variety of severe traumas where their own lives and the lives of others were, were threatened and people died and they witnessed it. And these were really extreme events outside the realm of usual experiences. And, and working with these individuals, I saw profound changes in their neurocircuitry in their brain, in their bodily physiology. They were defined by heightened autonomic stress responses. Many of them had flashbacks and were haunted by the traumas. And I believe that we need a term and a category that can account for these very severe traumatic events, which are at one edge of the spectrum that are associated with these neural and extreme emotional changes. And it concerns me that this word is now being used more readily to describe a range of emotional reactions and situations which um, might not align with what people might want or people might find distressing. And using and co-opting this word brings a number of problems. It, it potentially makes people into victims. It potentially means that people aren't exercising the emotional resources to um, overcome them in the same way. It may be also that they are blaming others and society for um, situations which then creates division and conflict. And actually we need to promote resilience. We need to promote ability of people to overcome emotional disturbances. And through resilience, we can also build a stronger and happier and healthy society. Thank you. Ian. Okay, I think it's true that uh, trauma has been taken up and used in different ways by people. And in that way, it's been taken out of the hands of the psi professionals, out of the hands of the psychiatrists and the psychologists. And it's been turned into many different things. And I don't think there's anything so wrong or problematic about people taking a term and working with it on their own terms and trying to make sense of their own lives. So I think it makes it a term to be puzzled over. So when someone comes into therapy, comes into psychoanalysis, then the question is, what does this mean to you? And in what sense does this resonate with your own life? And I, I don't think we should be so worried about it being transformed. Our, our task is to engage with that debate, engage with what people uh, make of it. Now. The other flip side of that is that psychiatrists and psychologists have often taken what they understand by trauma from everyday life and turned it into something which is a speciality, something which they can then pin down and, and define. And uh, I, I think that often they lose sight of what really is traumatic in people's lives. I think we find in the social movements concerned with racism, sexism, disability, and so on, it's those movements who have a more accurate understanding of what trauma is, because they understand that trauma is not a one-off event, but is rooted in actual life conditions and as, as much concerned with structures of oppression as it is with uh, individual experiences. And I think psychoanalysis, the third point, is that psychoanalysis has something to say about this. And what psychoanalysis adds to this question 
is the idea that trauma is always in some way retroactive, that trauma is always in some way making sense of something that's happened in the past that is incomprehensible, that hasn't been put into words, that can't be grasped. And it's a later event that leads people to puzzle about that, to open up an experience, to open up a memory, and to turn that previous experience into something that is, for them, traumatic. And that's why some of the professional categories like post-traumatic stress disorder are so misleading. It's not really post in the way that PTSD has it because it hasn't, it's not something that's over. It's something that is far more than stress. It's not a disorder because it can often be a very understandable and reasonable way of coping with past experiences. Uh, and so PTSD is really a misleading, misleading term. So we need to open that up and go with the way that people are working with it in their everyday lives and learn from that and engage in that. Thank you. Joan. Thank you. So I think this debate's very much about how inner experience can be conveyed in language. And so we all have this completely unique experience and then we're trying to find ways to talk about it in a general language. And I think coming at it from a literary kind of side of things, this is really the thing that poets and novelists get incredibly angsty about throughout writing, this idea that T.S. Eliot had that between the idea and the reality, there's a kind of shadow. So I think we're talking about this in relation to this very interesting word, trauma which is a very, very old word. And like lots of these really ancient words, it has all these layers of meaning. And so the original word comes from the ancient Greek and it means physical wounds, a physical injury, but also a sense of kind of hurt or defeat. So it's quite a general term. And then it's in the late 19th century that psychiatry, this kind of burgeoning science discipline starts using it as a psychic wound. So there's a really interesting change. And I think I'd love to know why that change in this term happens then. And then also, as, as my colleagues have said, this general use of it to mean suffering. But I think it still has the idea of a wound within it. And life does wound us in many ways. But I had one thing just quickly I wanted to talk about, this question of the everyday, because I think this is really interesting in this debate because there's an idea almost that the everyday is quite reasonable and then it's interrupted by the unreasonable. But I think we might all say that what's happening in the everyday is often very weird and very, really totally unreasonable. And I think about this often when I go for a walk near where I live in countryside, but there's a churchyard and it's very beautiful and it seems very quiet. And there are three graves beside each other and they represent three young men who died in 1916 within four months of each other. And you think this is very sad, but then you realize they came from the same family. They were brothers. And you think that's an unbearable level of suffering for that family. And yet the people who were enduring that were being told this was suddenly normal and every day, and that they just had to sort of accept that this change in reality was now reality. And so I think there's something about that I'd really like to discuss this kind of moment where reality is unreal and we feel so dislocated and so strange. And so I think if language can try to talk about that and the terms that we use, if it has that flexibility, I think that's also very useful as well. Thank you. Thank you. So we've heard about the dangers of over-specificity. We've talked about the dangers of describing things and labelling things. I'd just like to, as it were, lay the ground first of all and start with the first question, talk for a bit. How do we define trauma? 
Neil, would you like to have a go with that and take that well, further forward? Psychoanalysis defines it in one way, which is about the relationship between the past and the present. And we try and make sense of the past all of the time. And I think the thing about psychoanalysis is that it is concerned with the singularity of experience. So when someone talks about trauma, something happening that is traumatic to them, we have to take that seriously and explore what that means to them, what these words mean, rather than imposing a grid. And that's why psychoanalysts don't use the DSM. They don't use the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is the Bible of the psychiatrists. Psychoanalysts will look at the specificity of this term and try and work out, if you like, what the personal theory of trauma is of the person who is encountering it. So rather than offering a definition and tell you this is what it is, I think we need to listen to what people make of it and how they make sense of what this event is that is traumatic to them, how they configure it in their own lives. So I suppose I'm open to one, two, three, many theories of trauma, as many as there are people, rather than narrowing things down and fitting people into one theory. So let's go from the lived experience that you've defined to the laboratory. Yes. <laughs> Sarah, what's your take as a definition for trauma? Um, so I would probably lean more to the medical diagnoses um, and would want to define trauma more as an event outside of usual experiences, although I take your, I find your point fascinating. Um, and I would, I would restrict it more to um, uh, accidents or situations that threaten the life or integrity of the self. So it doesn't have to be life-threatening, but it can be threatening to one's integrity of, of who you are. Um, and I would want to confine it to those kinds of extreme situations, um, partly because we know that those can have categorically distinct effects on brain physiology and body physiology. So based on those reasons alone, there seems to be a fuzzy, but still biological distinction that can be made to siphon those off. Well, there's many things to talk about, but Joanne, do you want to pick up on either of those points? Yes, I think, I mean, it's so interesting about these layers of language. And I can see very much if you're using, I think it's a bit like with presumably a trauma unit, where, you know, this either a physical trauma, and then you have to distinguish categories within that for the good of the patients, because then you, you're doing a kind of emergency. So maybe within a kind of medical setting, it's very important to have that category hierarchy. And I guess I would, so looking at it from a sort of non-medical view, I think these words, very old words, they have lots of echoes in them. And so, as I said, this one, it actually even goes back further than ancient Greek. There's even a proto-Indo-European language word that's a bit like it that means piercing twisting so again this idea of something that's sort of you know in hurting this this feeling of hurt so i think i think inevitably we have these kind of slippages i mean i, I sort of agree with both of you in your respective disciplines and i think it's a bit like a word from literature like tragedy that we have this term tragedy which originally 
literally means a goat song. It's tragos, which is goat, <laughs> and oid, which is song. And there's this idea that, you know, people dressed in goat skins to perform the dramas because they were looking like satires. And But now if we go and see a tragedy, we don't say that was really rubbish because they weren't wearing goat skins and I didn't enjoy it. And <laughs> equally, I think if some poor person had a terrible, terrible thing that happened to them, we wouldn't say, well, you don't conform to the classifications of an ancient Greek tragedy and there was no hubris and no catharsis. You know, I think we'd understand these gradations of use. So I guess, I think I'm arguing it's really important within settings to have these terms, but also there are many, I think that's the odd thing about language. You have these many layers and settings where it is being used. Yeah, and some people are traumatized by goats and some people aren't. <laughs> you know, I, I am a bit, I mean, I, a I think bit. the. Yeah. I agree. The, the domain of expertise that, that you're working in, in in neuropsychology is really important and you need to anchor what you're doing in those specific terms in order to do your research. That's really important. But I think we also need to see how people configure their experience in ways of making sense of what's happened to them outside that domain in their own domain. If you take the example of Hillsborough, for example, the tragedy of Hillsborough, Hillsborough, if we were to read the tabloid press and take it seriously, we would simply think of it as being the activity of hooligans making a fuss about nothing. But through the campaign around Hillsborough to get justice for it, people were continually re-traumatized. The trauma did not only happen as one singular event, but it happened time and time again, where people involved weren't taken seriously and were suppressed, repressed. What they were saying was, was, was blotted out. So the traumatic event is a process. It, for them, it wasn't something that happened at one moment, but it was something that happened continuously as part of the campaign to seek justice. If you take another example, for some people, racism is a particular traumatic event. But for people involved in anti-racist movements, for black people who are fighting colonialism, for example, they understand that there's something deeper and more widespread about trauma as a continual process that is reiterated time and time again. So we need to go into a different domain to understand how trauma is being enacted there than the domain that you're working in, recognizing that both are important. Well, actually, I agree with your examples. I think they're beautiful examples of, of life and death scenarios and the integrity of self. The racism is, is really about threat to integrity of self. And the Hillsborough one was grounded in a traumatic event where people died and the not getting justice about that is perpetuating that original trauma. So I think those are excellent examples that could also fit into a medical model. I think my, and this is where I feel quite torn, as someone with high empathy, I really loved what you said about entering into people's own reality of their own trauma and trying to explore that and understand that. And I think um, from an empathetic perspective, that sounds beautiful and really important and meaningful. I guess I'm also worried about negative consequences that might arise from that. That if people, um, people narrate their own world in different ways and the way in which they 
frame it can also have implications. And we know, for example, that anxiety symptomatology and depression symptomatology are very much predicted by a propensity to be internally focused and reflective. And dwelling and talking and analyzing things can activate those self-referential networks and actually activating the brain parts that are more engaged in the external world and other things can reverse and alter the sort of anxiety and depressive symptomatology and I worry about the dangers of taking too seriously and it sounds terrible I don't know how to frame this people's own worries when it can sort of loop them into cycles of victimhood anxiety depression and self-reflection it's so interesting it's almost the argument about absolutism versus relativism in a sense that, that with, with what you're doing you can't have an absolute fracturing in a way is that is that something to do with what you're I saying that if you had a total fracturing where there's no agreement on a definition that would be really difficult but so but it's kind of trying to have the most agreement with the most flexibility in a way I mean is that part of it that I, I mean that would be one dimension of it but another dimension which I think is is really important here is the difference between individualizing an experience and putting it inside their head people's heads so that it's then the psychologists become the experts on what someone is thinking and feeling huh? on the one hand versus some collective sense in which people work with others through support groups or political campaigns and reconfigure what they're doing through that activity. So there's, a, there's this individual collective opposition here, which I think is also important. And the, the individualization of trauma is where the medical framing of it, I think, becomes particularly pernicious, particularly dangerous. If I can just pick up on one point here that I think you might disagree on, I was, I was very struck by the fact that you said, and I quote, it's not a one-off event. Now, losing three kids and the mum getting a knock on the door, sorry, your kid's died, that's about as one-off as it gets. Well, you've set up a scenario there, haven't you? You're talking about a... Yeah, but the general scenario being a one-off, a traumatic event is a one-off event. Trauma, wound. I wonder you know, how you fit that together with this idea of a process, a one-off thing and a process. I mean, it seems to me to be really quite a clear event. Well, no, because uh, the, the way that you framed it is with an event in your narrative so that we're then fixed on that event. But for most people, that isn't the way their lives unravel. For most people, their lives unravel through later things happening to them where they remember earlier things that have happened which have been incomprehensible, that haven't made sense, where things don't fit together. So remembering that people were killed is something that comes later and then is activated and turned into something traumatic. That's the way that people usually encounter something that is trauma, rather than immediately being subjected to something and living, it, living with it for many, many years. I, was, I mentioned the war trauma because I think with that, I know your debate slightly opposes war to the everyday, but I was sort of was thinking that, that it comes a point where the society has untethered itself from the reasonable to such an extent. And that's not in any way to diminish these individual moments of absolute atrocity, but also the whole society has kind of lost the possibility of being a sort of redemptive framework for the individual. And I just think that's something else that's working, possibly in a very general sense. And I wonder if um, we're using this very old, much used word in any way does move towards that 
experience. So, so that's interesting. So we can then see trauma that in this sense is the firing gun that starts a process which clearly has to be understood in the context, the broader society, which brings us on to the, the second thing to think about, which is you know, this idea that you know, this drifting, this widening you seem to be encouraging for the notion of trauma is actually something that um, you know, is part and parcel of our general society today. I mean, are we increasing the, the margins? You know, is there a bracket creep on the concept of trauma? I mean, I just definitely think there is. You can look at Google Trends um, and look at its growing use in language. It certainly changed, into, even in the medical definition of the DSM, which is our medical Bible that was talked to before, there's been a widening of the definition, even in medical terms, let alone in everyday usage. And people will say very readily that they feel traumatized by things and this is traumatic to them, and it's crept into everyday usage. And I think this is where I'd love to hear Joanna's point because I think words matter. We can see in experiments where if you change the way that words are used, the emotional sequelae that follows and memories can even change with the words that are, are used to frame questions. So words matter about our emotional reactions, our memories, our beliefs. And I fear that using the most severe words possible to describe a range of things can affect people's emotional reactions, can affect their feelings of victimhood, can affect their belief of capacity to cope. Um, and it can also create emotional problems for themselves if they're framing their experiences in a way which uses the most severe of terms. It's very interesting, Sarah's point. I was thinking about this in relation to the sort of arts and it's quite interesting at the moment, there's a, because if you think about, again, the sort of First World War, there's a huge trauma literature that emerges with people like Robert Graves and Siegfried Sassoon and Blunden writing their narratives it takes 10 years for them to emerge and then you have people like sheriff and journey's end and then you think about the second world war and you have people like kurt vonnegut and joseph heller and again they those narratives emerge in the 60s there's a kind of again a lag almost where people can't quite get these things into narrative frameworks and then it's quite an interesting reaction in literature and the arts at the moment where there was a really good piece in the new yorker by Parol segal recently which if you're interested i really recommend and also will self wrote a piece in harper's about the fact that there's a bit of a kind of thing now where every novelist who's hasn't got a plot sort of slightly lazily reaches for a you know kind of narrative of individual self-detection because trauma is this sort of buried event and so then the individual sort of hunts for their trauma through the narrative and i was thinking about that and i noticed i don't know if either, any of you have in a kind of exhausted hour played charlie and the chocolate factory to your children and there's an original <laughs> one which has this kind of willy wonka who just likes chocolate and he's gene wilder and he makes a factory and then there's a recent one with johnny depp where he only likes chocolate because his dad was a dentist and really messed him up and put a brace on him and kind of you know sort of traumatized him and that you can see that Bowdlerization is quite interesting, that transition. And I, I think it's quite interesting now within the humanities, there's a bit of a question about the, the sort of just easy deployment maybe of that in narrative. Because again, it's great if you release lots of stories and you tell lots of stories, but there's quite an interesting moment, I think, in that debate. Yeah, I think the Charlie and Chocolate Factory example is really interesting because there you have an example of where things are being psychologized. You know, right, ev everyday right. experiences are being turned into some kind of psychological or psychiatric categories in order to explain what, what's going on. And uh, I, I, I think 
my feeling is that the way that people are taking trauma carries a risk with it. I agree with you. It carries a risk that people carry these psychiatric and medical categories into their everyday lives. But I think the other side of that is that people are redefining trauma and working with it in a different way. And I think we need to be as alive to that possibility as we are to the danger. Now, if we, if we think of the way that trauma has become part of psychiatric and psychological uh, categories and part of popular culture. The key moment was in the 1960s and 1970s, where there was puzzling over two things. First of all, the legacy of the Holocaust and the ways in which uh, that event was theorized, conceptualized as a traumatic event. It was a world historical traumatic event that needed to be taken seriously. And the other thing was the Vietnam War, in which more American soldiers committed suicide than were killed in the war in Vietnam itself, committed suicide when they came back to the States, to theorize and conceptualize how it was that that event as a collective world historical traumatic event had an effect on that generation. So there we have a seepage of historical events into everyday experience and an attempt to make sense of them. What we need to do is open things up even more so we can think through what the consequences are of a range of other world historical events that have structured our lives today, of racism, the Me Too movement and sexism, of other forms of distress where people are seeking some kind of justice and using trauma as one of the tools in order to get that. Not such a bad thing. I but think. I agree with all of those examples, because again, they're things that threaten life or integrity of self as severe, they, they fall under the medical diagnosis. My worry is the the using of everyday experiences in, in therapy or in life and in conversations or in framing, which is seeping into, um, into life. So, so I feel like there's a disconnect between some of your examples, which are medical ones, and uh, which I agree with, and then it's general usage which is where I worry more and I want to come back to your interesting phrase which was individual self-detection and I, I also think that the growing use of the word trauma is a bit of an individualistic phenomenon um, it's about my trauma and my distress um, and it, it, it's a focus on self and and I think it's fractioning society a little with sort of promoting self as the the most important person and actually making people bl or blaming people for causing trauma and uh, and then there's a worry if it's being used in a more liberal term and actually we need to I would argue to be a happier society focus less on ourselves less on our own emotional distress focus collectively on making other people's lives better we know that's linked to happiness happier societies and and I worry about the growing trends of uh, individualistic reflection about one's own emotional discomfort um, yeah do you, would you I've just wondered would you include in uh, so individual bereavement in trauma so say a parent dies oh no, definitely trauma is that trauma? that's trauma yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah so i'm fine with so, that and that's obviously very everyday oh absolutely yeah. so the definition has slightly changed away from unusual yeah but it's it's still not 
usual. It's every day in the sense it's happening to people all the time, but it only happens to you once when a parent dies. I mean, it's still an extreme event in one's life. No, I, I death, in integrity to self, like I count these as traumas. I think I'm worried about emotional problems where people might frame it as traumatic uh, when it doesn't have these kinds of death, integrity to self yeah. uh, definitions. Yeah. That's, That's a, a real sorry. danger, though, though, isn't there? I mean, my father yeah. died two weeks ago, yeah. and oh, his death for me was not traumatic. Yeah, it doesn't need to okay? be, yeah. I'm a psychoanalyst. Yeah. Don't yeah, believe yeah. what I say, but <laughs> yeah. uh, it wasn't traumatic. <laughs> yeah. But I think when my stepfather dies, yeah. that will be very traumatic to me. So I think it really does depend. I agree with that. On, I do. Uh, yeah, I know. You I see, I'm worried about that. the way that you wheel in yeah. a category and say, this is traumatic, this isn't. No, and, huh? and, I, and I can see that it maybe comes across that way, and I, I don't mean it to come across. It's more, it's less about, it's more about seeping into everyday usage and that rather than um, the need for it to fit into a category. Um, so, yeah, I, I take your point. It's so interesting, this balance between, so we want language to express our human experience rather than delimiting it and kind of yeah. fixing it. And so it's always this question. But I was thinking about this idea of the wound again. I was thinking about grief because it's almost, I feel like grief's this wound we all carry. We all have this experience of, I mean, I think sadly probably, you know, many of us here, this, this moment of grief. And I'm so sorry about your father. And though, as you say, you know, it's, you've obviously have deep resources, it sounds like as a person who understands the mind, but I still, you know, I, just I just think traumatic. this sense that, <laughs> but I, I mean, that's your, you know, your, of course it's your right to define. Yeah. You see, but we should have the right to refuse a term we as well should, as absolutely. I agree, yeah. I, that's absolutely true. But I, I think though, as someone who lost a parent too, that the kind of commonality of that experience, the moments where it was required to, to speak that to someone and what, what they returned you know, moments I remember being in immigration outside New York with initially a very sort of scary immigration officer. And then I explained that some, you know, I was in America because my father had died and he immediately totally changed and said, I just have to tell you in the middle of this massive queue, you will get over it. Eventually oh. it will be okay. And of course, immediately we both burst into tears and everyone thought, is this woman being, you know, taken away? You know, it was all very strange. But that kind of, I think, as you said, the, the power of actual individual experience can also release commonality. So trying all the time to keep these communication lines as open as possible, I think is really important. We used to have exam boards when I was in the psychology department. And there was one year where a student uh, gave an excuse for a uh, low mark, uh, that their grandparent had died. And the external examiner, who was a psychologist, said, hmm, grandparent, I'm not sure that's traumatic. If it had been the parent, yes. This is the problem that we have, that we're using a category and telling people when and when they're not allowed to talk about trauma. Where I, my argument is that we need to take seriously how people are using trauma. It may be in the course of describing what they experience that they think, yeah, okay, maybe it wasn't so traumatic, but I think we have to give people the space to talk about it and think about it for themselves rather than a psychiatrist or a psychologist telling them yeah. what they should and, or shouldn't and feel. And I do, and I definitely, I'm sympathetic. I don't want to draw boundaries and say this is traumatic and this isn't. I definitely am sympathetic to your um, people should be able to narrate their own trauma um, and recognize their own trauma. I am definitely sympathetic to that 
perspective. And actually I do buy that. I still worry that if people left to their own devices are able to use that term and use that framing for something which then means they're not able to exercise emotional resilience, I mean, other types of coping mechanisms, which are actually dampened down because of their framing it as traumatic. That's my worry, is that um, that we're seeing a reduction in resilience of, of young people. And I see this in my students, crikey, I'm so worried about them. The levels of anxiety, depression, they feel very traumatized by things. And I don't wanna tell them it's not trauma, but I'm seeing them, they're not making friends, they're staying inside. Like they're, I'm worried about their emotional landscape and I'm worried that their labeling is actually impeding their capacity to build resilience. And that's the point I'm trying to make rather than force things into categories. Do you think you can spot resilience on a brain scan? Oh, well, I love this question. I love a brain scan. Psychoanalysis can keep you off the chain. I love a brain scan. Well, you're just going to bring it back to the brain. So, yeah, so, so great. So, so enthusiastic about your subject. So we can definitely see trauma in the brain. You know, this is why this is where I started with. This is the brain scan this signal. This is the brain scan signal. It's coming. So yeah. So when I would scan people with um, who had suffered traumas, and, and then you would see um, an area called the amygdala, was hyperactive. Um, that's an area that's involved yes fear but general salience is part of the limbic network you would see hyper um or altered activation of the uh hippocampus which is an area involved in memory you'd see loads and loads and loads of activation in the insula my favorite brain region which is involved in the sensing of bodily physiology so the racing heart the autonomic responses that you see with trauma and you see a reduction or altered activity in the vmpfc the ventral medial prefrontal cortex which is an area involved in regulation um, and this is what you classically see in people that have had a trauma um, uh, episode and they're finding it hard to uh, regulate their emotional reactions to it and so Conversely, um, resilience will be seeing um, a greater engagement of controlled areas in the brain, which are able to dampen down and inhibit this emotional reaction. So prefrontal cortex. And actually, you can see that the white matter tract between the VMPFC and the amygdala, the integrity of that tract predicts the degree to which you um, have anxiety symptoms. The idea being that if that tract is, is better, you are more resilient and you're more able to regulate these things. And yeah, I can't even remember why I was <laughs> well, yeah. this. Yeah. I got distracted. My original question yeah. was, you know, can you define resilience on the brain yeah, scan? So you but can see, I'm yeah. going to have to ask for a glossary of terms for this. Okay, I see, so, but yes, you we can. We need subtitles. Yeah. Well, for me, anyway. And resilience is very much linked to the activation of these prefrontal areas, which is involved in control, control of emotion, um, regulation. And I worry that if people are spending too much time talking about their trauma um, and exploring the emotions attached to it, I'm worried they're not engaging enough this circuitry or they're loading too much on this emotional reaction and they're not able to build up the resilience in the same way. Words can frame the emotional reactions in the brain. So can any of the three of you envisage a way in which these remarkable discoveries can change or do something about this 
use your word, the dangerous seepage of, tra of seepage of history, you know. Can we use these scientific insights to actually reach out and touch the psychoanalytic insights, about to meet somewhere clinically useful to change the way we go forwards? I think we have to take this point that you raised about the, uh, the power of words very, very seriously. And we need to think about the ways in which our brain is an incredibly plastic organ that the brain chemistry and the brain structure changes according to what's happened to us. It's not simply that the brain is ticking away and then doing things and then we behave in certain kinds of ways. It's as much the other way around as well. And I think we need to conceptualize these scans that you use as the basis of your research, not only in terms of what has happened before events, but also to conceptualize how people's experience then has an effect on their brain structure, which then shows up in the scans. That's my first caution, my first worry, uh, that, that it's a more complicated relationship between the two than a simple causal effect, a biological effect working its way out into practice. And my, my other worry is that these scans require, require a great deal of interpretation, and that's what you're skilled in. You're skilled in reading these scans and reading scans that have already been in, interpreted in the process of injecting the chemicals and working out what bits light up where, okay? If you put, there was a lovely experiment a few years ago where a group of uh, neuroscientists brought um, a frozen North Atlantic salmon in oh, the yeah, fMRI <laughs> scanner, and they were able to show that the frozen North Atlantic salmon in the scanner engaged with the task. No, it didn't uh, engage, no, but, but, but they but, had but activated I, I, What it shows is that there's a degree, <laughs> there's a big degree of uncertainty, uh, which is we fill in the gaps in our interpretation, and we need to be careful about where those interpretations come from. So, to, although I agree with you that you make some valid points, there's definitely a difference in the brain for people who have had some of these very traumatic events versus those who have not um, had these sort of medically um, classified traumatic events. So that is definitely true and not up for interpretation. But I want to come to a different point. I want to come to the point of behavioral activation. And my understanding of it, it's about um, treatments for depression um, uh, and, and pain and other things by making the outside world more engaging. So it's taking a focus away from self and onto the world. Um, and these things are shown to have a positive effect. And I take from this, and our brains oscillate between internal processing and external processing. Um, and this comes back to yeah, your sentence about you know self-reflection that if we spend too much time focusing on self analyzing self analyzing trauma then we're activating these circuits which are very much implicated in depression and anxiety and it becomes reinforcing and one way you can help people is get them out of themselves focus on the world focus on helping someone focus on you know an interesting lecture focus on something else and they'll start to they can start to feel better again and it's a they can. I had the word can. I had the word can. But I want but to know, did yeah. the salmon feel better? <laughs> I'm worried about the salmon. Yeah, the salmon got caught. That's yeah. true. What, what happened to the salmon? This is the yeah. question. And it was a problem because the salmon was dead. So the fact that there were, was it's a couple a of oxals was a bit yeah. but it was, but it's a long, It's a long story. And... Uh, 
Yeah. But no, it's very different from what I do. <laughs> I don't, I don't do fish. <laughs> what you're um, doing is not fishy at all. It's all oh, oh dear. Right, okay, can, uh, we, can I, we just get back to the, the science and the art here? Traumatic right? pun. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I do think it's so interesting because it's this whole question which we've only got two minutes to answer according to that sign. And I, I wonder so much about this question. I, I don't think we'll do it in two minutes. But about whether when you name something or you can't kind of magic it into existence and words create these things or whether there's a very old tradition of this idea that you kind of get control over it and it's a bit like if you were an ancient Egyptian you were trying to get through the underworld if you knew the names of all the monsters that were going to kill you and the names of all the crocodiles and the sort of scary things then you could kind of deal with them and you could sort of name them and therefore slightly neutralize them. And so, and obviously to some extent, when the Egyptians talk about the underworld, they really mean our lives. They mean the kind of day to day. So it's that difference between is language empowering in the sense that it gives you these words to explain things and you feel better unless you're the salmon, but <laughs> or is it somehow that you kind of induce states yeah, of being? I, and I think this is such an ancient philosophical, neuroscientific, yeah. psych, you know, psychiatric, question that we may not do it in the time but i would love to and you can know more create about things you can create things they've done false memory experiments where they show people um uh, videos of car crashes and they then change the words of how much uh glass was there when the cars smashed into each other bumped into each other crashed into each other. you can change the word and people's memories will change uh, and report more smashed glass when the word smashed was used so you can change people's uh, memory reports as a function of how uh, a word, a sentence is phrased. Um, and I wonder how much that extrapolates to emotional landscapes and responses if people are framing it as trauma. What does then that do to the emotional sequelae which then follows? Ian, you want to point? Yeah, we, we had a final question that we didn't have time to go through, which is whether trauma, the way that we talk about trauma in everyday life needs to be medicalized. And I think the answer to that is no, it does not need to be medicalized. And it's a real danger and a real problem when it is medicalized. When it's medicalized, then we come into exactly the kind of traps and problems that you're worried about. That's where your concerns are absolutely right, I think, where people are trapped in a kind of medical framework and then conform to a medical understanding of their distress rather than able to work with it collectively and think about who they are and who they could be, how resilient they could be working together rather than trapped inside their own heads. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy of Foreign Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.